All right, you know what time it is. It's time for the morning walk with a stream of random podcast. This is your host, Hacker Mike, on the first cold morning. The harbinger of winter is here. I actually had to put on some sweatpants and a jacket instead of running around in shorts. It's quite amazing that I'm getting so many listens on my podcast now. So I want to thank all the guests who are tuning in. And I think we're building a momentum. And I guess people are coming to listen I don't know why. I'd like to think they think it's interesting that we're providing unique content. I did see some resonance with my idea with China and New York being taken over. Um, I guess I'm just resonating with that idea myself. In the last episode of No Agenda, Adam also mentioned the idea that New York might just be taken by the Chinese as payment like they do in other countries, which is exactly what I talked about here first. So it looks like we're hitting the same wavelength. So I don't know who's listening, but I know a lot of no agenda producers are listening. Maybe a lot, a couple, a few. A handful of my peeps. Now, I did get an interesting um, message yesterday, and I wanted to uh, <sighs> actually, I won't bring it up right now. I don't want to feed the trolls. Um, so, it's already six forty-four in the morning. It's a late start. I had to charge my phone and I'm making so much progress with Haskell that I'm enjoying it so much. I'm still struggling with uh, passing of parameters to functions that are complicated. Like I couldn't get my parameters to be passed. I wanted to pass in an an array and a... uh, some other data using a uh, simple, I guess, simple parameter list. So instead I just created a custom data type that wrapped the parameters and I just passed in that one data type and it works. So I guess I have a workaround. I'm still, I still need to learn this language better, but I am very much amazed at what I can do. It is quite the uh, interesting toy to play with. And um, I think given that new neurological model of action, if we see data 
and data in the mind, not as something that is static. You know, there's always been this long-term, um, long-held viewpoint that knowledge itself is no good and introspective data is worthless. Now I contend that given the new inside-out model that we talked about on this show briefly, and I'll just reiterate it for everyone listening. Basically, you're born to survive and you're hardwired to survive at birth. Just like the foal is able to stand up, you're able to do certain things and the brain learns to connect its inner patterns that are hardwired or its survival patterns or control patterns, it connects those with the outside world. So via action, it observes the reaction and it connects those actions with stimulus. So, what does that mean? Basically, let's say you're hungry, or I don't know, let's say you're hungry. And seeking food is a built-in function of the brain. So there's different generators that generate waveforms in the brain. And I guess you will learn to make movements, let's say. And those are generated by these different waveforms. I'm not not exactly clear on this, but basically what he's trying to say is that we're not a blank slate when we were born. We have certain generator functions. And we learn by attaching inputs to expected parts of those generator functions. So we'll remember, when we do experiments, we'll remember what got us food. But the searching for food is definitely a built-in function, let's say. So we could redefine the neural imprints as imprints of when you make the connection between some circuitry, some built-in 
need or generator sine wave function generator let's say when you when you connect that with a real world okay you might think that I'm just talking crap here I'm very, having a hard time articulating myself on this topic I'm gonna have to think about it some more but basically my insight is that introspective data is not useless if you're actively querying it and actively giving it meaning by experiments. And that's it. But the experimentation loop is what gives meaning to the data. And um, we're going to adopt a more I hate to say it, but maneuver, maneuver warfare type attitude of actively searching and creating queries to match certain given patterns that we expect. And by fulfilling those patterns, we give meaning to the data. All right, guys. Well, that's enough philosophy of crap today. Um, now let's get into some meaty subjects. So we have queued up today a podcast that sounds very dry and scientific. And it's about the... Um, Charles Allen McCoy, Disease States, Epidemic Control in Britain and the United States. And it gives us the develop, uh, disease control in the United States starting with 1793, the yellow fever outbreak in Philadelphia to H1N1. And he talks about, let me quote from this uh, description. McCoy shows that even the seemingly objective matter of the contagion is deeply enmeshed in social and political realities. And by developing unique systems of biopower to control the spread of the disease, Britain and the United States have established different approaches of exerting political control over citizens' lives and bodies. So, if you ever have any question of how the government thinks about you. You were, they're exerting biopower over human resources. And it's not just the vaccine, it's actually the control system around the vaccine that exerts biopower. And they've used these vaccines in other systems, but vaccines as a symbol of power um, for quite some time. So we're going to uh, cue this up and listen and see what we can learn.
this is going to be a tough one, I think. And again, I'm not going to play the whole thing. I'm going to listen to it. And I'm going to try and extract some interesting parts to give some insights and then maybe give you a starting point for research. This podcast is not about giving you conclusions. It's about opening your mind to new possibilities for research and maybe different perspectives on things. Um, I think there's a definitely a different perspective on these topics for researchers than for politicians. And let's say people talking to the media, you're going to get a completely different spin. And they have to, um, they have to make things palatable and apply social uh, science propaganda to um, to get the message out and to get the human resources, their subjects to follow the orders so they can exert biopower over them. Yeah. But it's all for the good of the collective, don't forget. And if you have to die from it, it's just an unfortunate uh, cost of saving the state. So, you know, take one for the team, guys. All right. Let's go. (sighs) Yeah, and again, the reminder is this episode is being produced live and the mark name will be live until all the segments are uploaded and then I will rename it so if you see live in the title I think you can go to anchor.fm and listen to it as it gets uploaded not all the podcast players it's anchor.fm slash s-t-r-e not all the podcast players will um, refresh as fast they might take an hour to upload the next update so um, if you have a partial episode then just um, go to anchor.fm and pull it from there or something let me know what's happening I can also send you the mp3 file and eventually we're gonna create some infrastructure behind this some open sores all right guys so we're gonna kick this off with a um, clip where he defines the bellicose theory as a theory that states will grow in extension, exterior force through warfare and threats, well, warfare. And that's what defines the growth of a state. And then his theory is that the state will grow internally to deal with its people um, in the with the virus um, or uh, health threats and now given that theory and he's saying the intensity of the state to deal with the people and we learned about the Chinese you know developing records and census material 
for uh, this purpose, the vaccination card or the vaccination passport. But um, we also learned that that was actually developed in warfare as a war um, <clears throat> as a uh, warfare tactic. And then it was taken out of the warfare, or the Sino-Japanese War it was taken out into peacetime. But China has been in a constant state of conflict uh, <coughs> with, um, I guess, also being the communist uh, revolutionaries they are, they've been in, con in conflict with the capitalism since the beginning, let's say. So that's an interesting theory. Um, and now I'm just going to pop this into my head that we not only have the biopower, but we have now the information power. And let's just assume that what Twitter and Facebook is doing to censor people talking about the virus um, is actually state power or state control. So we may think that they're just doing it on their own and they're censoring people like all three companies are censoring like Alex Jones on the same day. But have we ever considered that it's just an expression of state information control for the purposes of defense? So they just came up with a definition. They said, well, we have to control our human resources and what they consume in terms of information um, for the purposes of getting them vaccinated and sending them to war because we need these human resources to go and die on the battlefield for us um, and we need to control what they consume otherwise they might not be willing to uh, go sacrifice themselves in various forms for the good of the collective so um, maybe maybe what we're seeing here is a uh, Maybe what we're seeing here is some kind of uh, information control as well that's actually coming from the state. This is just a theory. I have no proof. I'm just coming up with this. Uh, because, you know, we have to follow the multi-level model here where biological power, or let's say military power, is just one level of a multi-level, multifaceted system. So then biopower is the next level, let's say vaccinations, health. Well, what comes after? Once you have those two sorted out, what comes next? Well, information. If we follow the Leary model of, you know, stage one is like food, oral, that would be health. Stage two is anal, that would be military. And then stage three would be symbolic processing. Well, that's, hey, that's information. And we're going to see a push ever more into higher stages. And I do consider information theory and computing to be its own entity in terms of memeology. So it has its own replication field that's independent of human. Well, anyway, let's play this clip. Enough talking. So what I would generally say is that within uh, comparative historical work, a lot of it is done on, you know, governments and states. 
Um, and there's a kind of a long steer, a long-standing theory um, in uh, what's called state formation theory, which is called the the bellicose theory. Um, and basically, what it does is it says that you know warfare, uh, the need to defend the nation militarily, and the need to extract resources uh, for the military is basically one of the primary sources of how uh, the government and the state. Uh, grows, you know, how it develops and how it becomes, you know, a big, powerful organization. And th- this is the work done by, um, most notably, uh, Charles Tilley and, and Norbert Elias. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I think it's a really good theory. It's very, you know, it's very impressive. And, and to me, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, when I was looking at the theory, I kind of reasoned that, you know, it, it can't just be warfare. It can't just be the threat of, of military war. That you know that, that that the state has to respond to, but there must be other states. Uh, there must be other threats, um, and so one of those threats would be you know biological threats, so you know outbreaks, disease, um, you know things of that nature. And so you know I became interested in that way of thinking about how does you know how does the government respond to these other threats? You know how does the government respond to biological threats, and then how does that develop the state and grow the state? in ways that the response to warfare and the military doesn't. Um, so generally speaking, you know, the military, you know, will increase what's called the extensive power of the state. You know, it will increase its territory, kind of the breadth of, of, of how much land and territory the state has control over. Whereas, you know, when you have to deal with a biological threat, what you have to do is in some sense, get more into the everyday lives of your citizens, right? You now actually have to start to care about them in a way that you might not have before to the same degree. And so you have to, you know, you have to now, you know, see if they're healthy and see if they're, you know, what, what you know, what it, get more involved in their everyday lives. And so this is kind of basically what's called the intensive power of the state, you know, how much the state, um, manages its citizenry and is able to kind of um, use its population. Um, and so that really, in some sense, got me interested. It's kind of just thinking about a different way uh, that the state uh, has to respond to threats and, and how um, those responses, you know, develop and grow the state. So this next clip, he says, origins become destinies and that the origin of an organization basically forms how it will um, act in the future. So we can just assume that the WHO having been formed out of the China Sino Sino War, I mean the Japan Sino War, and coming from the history of mass forced inoculation, that that is actually its destiny, just because it was formed that way, if we follow the neural network model and the me model. This was a meme. It was created. It was successful. It's just going to propagate itself. I guess that's you know the heart of the argument of the book, right? So the you know the idea that origins um, become destiny, that the, the starting conditions of an institution like disease control, like disease control, shapes its overall development well into the future, and you know is can it help under help us understand what it looks like today. Um, so- Okay, so in this next longer clip, he's going to go into the formation response cycle. Well, he's basically showing how tactics 
or individual things that people have done then get promoted to um, to practices and that like spontaneous responses to things then become established as uh, long-standing and I think that's what we're going to see here is that in the corona times that um, <clears throat> that the governments are enjoying this newfound power to control things and it's establishing itself and we have to also see that it's not just a local response it's a coordinated global response and this also goes into my theory from the Great Reset where he's talking about these reparation payments that are going to be made to them the banks over the next generation, these trillions of dollars that we're going to owe under condition. And I said, well, that sounds like reparation payments for war. So are they saying that we are the conquered people who now owe them reparations? I mean, that's how I derive that theory. So um, <clears throat> I think what we're seeing here is maybe what we consider a global war on this disease, a coordinated response. And um, we are hearing about these um, vaccination passes that are being developed with cryptocurrency in Africa. Uh, we hear about all types of stuff um, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen with some kind of uh, chip, some kind of in, uh, vaccination pass that is either implanted on, on you as a chip or as that crazy lady was talking about being um, a Luciferian, a luminescent uh, tattoo that you get stamped with on the arm um, that marks you as being vaccinated I mean that's some crazy stuff but what if some of that is actually real where we're talking about um, these individual tactics and what if they uh, get promoted so this is kind of where we get into the meme the conflict theory um, and what memes uh, Will survive and propagate and um, I think I think uh, well I still believe in America as being a free country and it will resist um, in many forms I think it will it will resist uh, encroachment of the government so it will become a difficult target and I think they'll mostly go with propaganda but we're going to see states that are more authoritarian, or well, actually more liberal, with uh, liberal being the actual hidden authoritarianism, meaning. Uh, good morning. The more uh, the more liberal the state is, the more 
power we give up in the time of emergency to the authoritarian that's going to save us, according to uh, the critique of liberalism that we learned about. So yeah, um, we're going to see how this all plays out. It's going to be interesting. But uh, some of these things are going to stick around. These laws are going to be in the books, and then they might also be used for other things, you know. Um, and look what happened in Australia with that lady who was, the police raided her house and took her computers because she wanted to organize an anti-COVID um, meetup on Facebook. So just think about that. Um, how the incitement laws are inter interpreted differently. In America, incitement has to be an imminent threat of violence. But I guess in the other former British colonies, uh, they exert more control. So we're going to see what happens um, if he's going to make the case that the British um, system of having more control over the people is going to be touted as a better system. I'm, I'm thinking that's where I might be going. We're going to see. Um, but that could be one of his theories that's going to be developed. I haven't listened to this podcast yet. I haven't read the book. You're listening with me for the first time, so you're getting my uh, response. So let's, let's, uh, let's listen. You know, why did uh, Britain begin to respond to outbreaks of disease um, earlier than the U.S.? Right. So we see that, you know, Britain um, responds to diseases like yellow fever, cholera, not not so much yellow fever, but cholera uh, earlier in the 19th century, uh, whereas the U.S. only does this, you know, later, much later in the century. And so the basic question is, you know, why or, you know, why does the U.S. flag behind um, Britain in this way? Um, and so to answer that question, um, the, one of the main concepts of the book is what's called a, a response formation cycle of disease control. And so the basic idea of this is that it's kind of a, a positive feedback loop. So sometimes um, historians have looked at um, the growth of public health and the growth of disease control and looked at these so-called kind of watershed moments. Right. So an example of this is um, Edwin Chadwick and his um, 1842 report um, you know, on disease control and how this really spurred development. And, you know, and so all, sometimes it's kind of uh, described as if, you know, okay, something, you know, this report's written and then suddenly something happens and there, there is this kind of moment, you know, a historical moment or event that produces something. Um, but what I guess I would say is the argument of the book is, you know, that's not really how it works in terms of disease control um, institutionalization, that rather there is this kind of uh, positive feedback loop that can sometimes actually be kind of slow moving. Um, and so the idea of a positive feedback loop um, in terms of response and information of disease control is that, OK, so a, a locality like a city or a state or, you know, some area will experience an outbreak of disease. And, and, and they do something to respond to it. You know, they have some ad hoc measures. You know, they start to clean the streets or they set up a hospital or they form, you know, a board of health to kind of just deal with the problem. And so then the idea is that, well, these momentary tactics can sometimes, not necessarily, but sometimes become 
more longer term techniques of disease control, right? You know, these tactics become techniques. You know, the local board of health sticks around, you know, it becomes something permanent. Um, you know, reports are written, you know, rules and laws are developed. And so that what happens is, you know, the immediate response becomes, you know, a more long-term formation of disease control. But then what happens is that more long-term formation then helps the locality, the city, respond to the next outbreak, right? allows them to do something more effective. And then that produces more tactics. And and then the cycle continues. You know, you know, then you have this kind of... Okay, so I'm a big fan of definitions and lists. So when I hear him come out with this list of the four reasons why... Um, Britain responded earlier, so I'm going to clip it. And he's basically saying that Britain is more centralized than America, that they had a uh, theory, well, that there's a theory of the disease. Maybe the Americans didn't have that theory. They also said that outside pressure groups are needed to cause a reaction. And then finally, whether or not they see the people as a social body, whatever that means. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, not the greatest definitions, but, uh, you know, he came up with some. So, uh, let's, uh, let's play that and then see what else he has to say. Uh, I'm going to kind of fast forward now to look for some juicy bits that might expose, uh, Something I might not start playing everything now. We'll see uh, what we got. Four different reasons, you know, four causes. You know, it's, it's state centralization, how centralized the state is to respond, whether the state has a theory of disease, you know, what it knows, you know, has an idea of like what's causing it, even if it is incorrect, um, whether it imagines its citizenry as what's called a social body, and then lastly, whether there's pressure from outside groups, kind of pushing the state to do something. And so the basic argument is that the, you know, these conditions existed earlier in Britain uh, than, the, than they existed in the U.S. And again, here's a theory um, that I also mentioned yesterday, or maybe today, you know, that the history shapes us. And this is what he's going to say, is that we have to study the history to understand how we got here and he also mentioned, I skipped over that, but he mentioned that these institutions can't change. So once they have the original impulse, once they have their mimetic material, they can't just shift into a new form because they have a technical debt. They have all this documentation, they have all these neurons that have been trained in a certain way. So they built up this body, let's call it a neural network, you know, a distributed neural network of humans where the meme is embedded in them and then if the rules of the training system change you have to retrain that network but you want to save as much as you can because you can't just shift it more quarantine style in the US and then I guess maybe most importantly in a way in a sense is you know how does their responses uh, their their historical responses what do they tell us about the contemporary times, you know, and so it's for what I would say is the one thing I'm trying to add is to say that, you know, history is not just in the past, you know, where the history is shaping the present, 
you know, that we can understand what's happening now, you know, with disease control in Britain and the U.S. by understanding their historical record and how their history got us to where we are now. So unfortunately, I had to skip over a huge section of this podcast where they just mumble and jumble and they really don't make any poignant clippable pieces. You'll have to listen to it yourself. Link is in the show notes. But he's basically saying that the corona response was botched equally by the British and the Americans. The British had the take of uh, letting it happen and dealing with the response. And they let it happen, it was too much, and then they caused the lockdown. And now he's going to say that America um, focused on trying to keep it out and could not deal with it when it came in. But I thought that this whole idea of the messaging for the masks was interesting. Because um, I think the messaging for the masks is really a very political subject. Um, It hasn't been shown to help. I mean, let's just start with, if the masks are so important, why don't they treat them as biohazard? Because if they're so full of infectious material, yet they're not being disposed of properly, they're just lying everywhere, being reused, and it's in general uh, being touched all the time. I mean, it's not... The mask is more of a symbol than anything else, let's put it that way. One of his first boasts was, oh, well, I shut down travel from China, I shut down travel from Europe. But that was never going to keep this disease out. But the problem was for America that it's so fixated on trying to stop an outbreak from ever occurring that it actually, I think, has devoted less energies to dealing with a domestic uh, damage that an outbreak does when it inevitably does occur. Right? We weren't able to keep it out. And actually, we invested so much in trying to do that that we were were less able to deal with the aftermath of an outbreak, right? This is what, you know, we don't have a health system that is properly set up to deal with a surge of infectious cases. Uh, we don't have public health messaging you know, to get people all on board with, say, wearing masks. Uh, we don't have a system uh, that is to deal with the damage that an outbreak like coronavirus will do and is doing. Um, and so we were more focused on trying to keep it out uh, than than to keep it in. Yeah, I think we're going to have to go back and listen to the episode on Foucault from the uh, Philosophize This Mouth podcast, because Foucault is the one who came up with the idea of biopower, and he's going to introduce it here. Now, <clears throat> um, as to whether or not getting forcing people to be vaccinated is good or bad, I would say it is good to be vaccinated, but the how or what the vaccines are might be the problem. So the first problem that I have is that these things are widely untested, and I don't want experiments being done on me. And <clears throat> second of all, I question um, the efficacy of a flu vaccination, and um, I hear that this is a genetically modifying one. So, I mean, I would—I'm just very skeptical about the how, not the what, myself personally. So, uh, let's play this clip. 
academic term, but but biopower yes. um, is that they're both coercive forms of biopower. Can you yes. explain a little bit what you mean by that? Um, and sure. then I'm also wondering if you think is biopower necessarily bad and is yeah. maybe one form of biopower in the public health system the you preferable to the other or anyway sure. so so they're both similar and different at, in in the in that they are exercises and you know exercising biopower sure so a, a kind of super brief history of the term so biopower uh, comes from the French theorist Michel Foucault um, where he says you know at some point you know over the centuries the government became interested in managing the bodies of their population, right? That they became interested in having some degree of management, but also a degree of power over the health and and physical, biological bodies of their citizenry. Um, And he called this biopower. And, you know, there's a long history of this and lots of stuff written about that concept of biopower. Um, Foucault, I think, would say, I would say, kind of talked about it in, in a slightly kind of abstract theoretical sense. But the argument of the book is that biopower is actually shaped by historical events and that what we see is that Britain and the U.S. actually have different forms of biopower in terms of infectious disease. Um, and so that, you know, the U.S. takes this, I would say, more directly coercive approach to biopower, right? So it sets up kind of legal... Uh, limit and kind of says, you know, this is what we can do to your body. You know, we can put you in isolation. We can stop you at the border. You know, these are, we, you know, kind of a directly coercive approach to individuals' bodies, right? Whereas Britain um, has taken a more, uh, what I would call, subtle or indirect form of biopower. It's still powerful. And to a certain degree, it's still coercive in, in the sense that it shapes people's bodies, um, but it's more subtle. It doesn't so much say, you know, we have the legal ability to quarantine you and isolate you, but it's more about persuasion. It's more about public health education. It's more about um, having public health nurses come to your house after your baby is born and suggesting vaccinations. Um, you know, it is more subtle in a certain degree, more indirect, but it's, it's still very powerful. And so, again, what I would say is, you know, Britain and America have developed these these different forms of biopower. They're both powerful um, and they're both to a certain degree coercive in the sense that they they get people to do things the state wants them to do. The question is, is biopower necessarily bad? Um, No, I mean, (laughs) I think... It depends on who you ask, but I would say no. Um, you know, if you, for example, if you want um, people to get vaccinated and some people in the population don't want to get vaccinated, you know, they resist vaccination. Um, what do you do? Uh, both Britain and America in their various ways use forms of biopower to get their, these people who are unwilling or uninterested in vaccination to get them vaccinated. That is a form of biopower. Um, if you ask people who are against vaccination, they will say, yeah, that's not good. Um, if you ask a lot of other people, you know, is it good that the majority of the population be vaccinated? People are going to say yes. 
And so I would say, you know, biopower is not necessarily bad. Okay. Well, I just went uh, shopping and grabbed a little bite to eat, so I'll tell you what happened. Uh, well, now I carry a mask with me on my walks, but I don't really carry cash. So first I had to get some cash because I wanted to get some coffee at the coffee shop. So first I go to this farmer's market and they have a nice deli there. So I go up to the lady at the deli and I ask her for end cuts because they're selling them for $3 a pound. And she has this humongous bag of end cuts. I'm like, I'll take all of them. So I got 10 pounds of end cuts, something like that. $30 worth of end cuts. I also got some bread, got some juice. And uh, the lady is looking through that and she's like, oh my God, Dios mia. They are throwing away these humongous pieces of meat. I said, yeah, baby, this is America. We throw away food. In other countries, they'd be shooting each other over that piece right there. And she's just shaking her head. Like, it was literally a humongous piece of end cut. It was like five inches long. It's like, why would they throw that away? Anyway, so end cuts, that's the way to save money and you get some amazing things. The best part is the roast beef and pastrami end cuts. They have all that nice spicy stuff on the outside. It's really great. Morning. So, uh, I get that stuff. They don't, they can't give me cash. And I got so many bags, I don't have a backpack. So I go to Dollar General next door, or Dollar Tree, and I buy myself a $1 little backpack, a drawstring bag, with two drawstrings I can wear over my back. And I get some cash, and I go to the cafe. I order four shots of espresso, and a, and a pork roll sandwich with egg and cheese. And they even gave it to me with potato fries. Pretty, pretty luxurious breakfast, let me tell you. So now I'm walking with some extra weight, which is not bad. And we're going to uh, try a new, new route today. So we see how that works. I can't disclose my route, of course, or my location for purposes of security. So anyway, it's a windy right now. We got fishers here. And uh, yeah, well, okay, so this next clip is going to be on if what type of biopower is appropriate. And luckily, this guy is saying, well, leave it up to the people. To choose their government, but he also also saying that you know in the time of crisis they push through things that you normally wouldn't accept, but those things are here to stay forever. So be careful what you give, what you grant to the government. So let's play this. One form of biopower better than the other. You know, do we want a subtle, indirect form of biopower where the the uh, government persuades us and educates us to do certain things with our bodies, or do we want the government just to mandate and control our bodies um that's harder to answer and in some sense you know i have my own personal opinion 
But what the academic in me says is, well, that's a question up for the research. That's a question up for the citizenry. You know, it's a question that we as a population have to ask ourselves and, and, and do ask ourselves. And the one thing, and this is what I kind of conclude in the book with, is saying, you know, it's up to us, the citizens, to say what kind of biopower we want. But we have to be careful in what other form of biopower we give the government. And so the whole argument of the book is that, you know, the past forms of biopower are present in the, we see them in the present. But that's also true for the future. Uh, the biopower that we give the government today will exist long into the distant future. And so what I say is, you know, if you give the government the power to quarantine one nurse who comes back from West Africa today, you're not just giving them that power. You're giving them the power to quarantine countless people well into the future. And it's during outbreaks that people feel a sense of a crisis and people feel unsafe. And it's during periods of crisis and feeling unsafe that people, the citizenry, are willing to give up, willing to give the government forms of power that they that they have they might not otherwise. Um, so the short answer is, I can't say whether one form of biopower is better than the others, but I can say that we should think about it careful, carefully um, as citizens. Well, that brings us to our, our. Okay, so that's it with that uh, episode. I mean, that that episode, that podcast. Uh, <clears throat> he's not saying any more juicy bits. He's going on to talk about his current work. But I think we got some ideas about biopower, and we know that we need to do more research. I think it's also important to note that um, we take an inquisitive approach to things. We don't know enough about all of this to actually conclude anything. So I think important is to have an open mind and to gather more information. So I just wanted to uh, share an idea that I had on this walk this morning. And this goes back to the generator idea. Now, if we can't frame our ideas in terms of, let's say, uh, generated functions like survival, let's just say that our brain is wired for survival and that we have to frame everything we do in terms of that survival. for the generator to give meaning to our actions. I mean, that's a simplified view of things, but, and uh, I was just thinking that, well, maybe like the study of abstract things <clears throat> is either a status symbol or hiding, um, like a camouflage or a hiding tactic with Plato going off and escaping reality. Maybe that's part of his tactics for surviving when his mentor was killed. 
anyway, I, th I think, um, you know, maybe it is just a status symbol, uh, all of this learning. But again, it can be framed in terms of survival again as useful. So is it a status symbol or is it an investment in building your little mental fortress preparing for the next invasion? So I don't know. We still have to think about all of this some more, just some ideas that I had on the way. Okay, so now we're going to go back to the Tom Woods podcast and we're going to rewind a little bit and play the last part of what we had on um, when I did that early morning walk where I had all those trucks driving by me and I wasn't really my battery ran out so I didn't really get to finish this podcast and I was kind of pissed off about the route that I picked so uh, we're going to uh, re rewind and basically he's saying that we have a Marxist theory which comes from the Hegelian dialectic of two sides opposing each other with with um, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis in a loop. We have the oppressor and the oppressed. Uh, and he's saying that basically the oppressor doesn't know that he's oppressing. The oppressed is some is is sleeping to that fact, and they have to wake up, develop a critical consciousness, and shame the oppressor into giving up. And then I guess it's going to shift and go to the next level where I guess the oppressor is going to then find a new way to oppress. And then the oppressed is going to have a new way to wake up to it, I guess, in an endless loop. Unless, of course, they have a revolution and become the oppressor. Anyway. Um, and that's then mixed with a... postmodern theory that there is no such thing as real knowledge, that all knowledge is political, and those two become combined to create a particularly potent version where the knowledge of the oppressed is unquestionable and the knowledge of the oppressor is biased. So and people can just engage in hashtagism to virtue signal. Well, let's listen to what he has to say. Trustworthy thing, and when that ended up getting mixed with this uh, very radical critical identity politics, then it became identity groups have their own knowledges. Those knowledges, if they are from an oppressed group, cannot be challenged. If they are knowledges from a dominant group, they must be interrogated for their biases. And so it's a way of viewing the world that feeds very, very powerfully into ideas of victimhood or grievance as mediated through these concepts of systemic oppression. And they are very seductive ideas. So it all seems very abstract, but at the bottom of it is a worldview that is very easy to take up, can be very seductive because it gives many people a way to completely deny their own responsibility for any of the bad things that happen to them or the ways that things aren't working out or their lack of success, while it gives other people a perspective in which they can become something like uh, miniature civil rights heroes who we all venerate merely by engaging in kind of strange verbal, uh, almost symbolic activism like hashtags and calling people names 
uh, and informing social media. Okay, so this next clip you should listen to a couple times, and it's basically um, why questioning somebody the validity of their claims is a form of oppression and forcing them to explain to them onto your terms is another. So really the only thing that you are allowed to do is submit. Um, <clears throat> Good morning. The only thing that you're allowed to do is submit uh, and roll over and play dead or become the oppressed. That's uh, your only option at this point. Social media mobs. Maybe I'm stating the obvious, but it seems as if the way these people have constructed their view of the world, it's impossible for there to be civil discourse between different groups. Is, yeah. I mean, do you think that's really more or less true? Yes, it's simultaneously impossible and completely discouraged, strongly discouraged. Civility is seen as a value that has been brought into the world under a doctrine of white supremacy or even and, and also sometimes patriarchy. And so civility is seen as a way, demands for civility and civil discourse are seen as ways to suppress those who are in oppressed status. The, the oppressed aren't allowed to speak on their own terms. They're forced to speak in civil terms that deny their anger, that deny their pain, that deny their trauma. So it's strongly discouraged to use uh, civil discourse. But it's also impossible because when you have now a shift to a very um, lived experience-based or, or subjective, uh, subjectivist frame of reference for truth claims, which is the postmodern contribution here, there's no possibility for discourse. If, if somebody says that you know racism is present in our organization and then somebody says, well, I'm willing to hear the evidence, where's the evidence? The reply is if you lived as somebody who's systemically oppressed by race, you would already know. So asking for evidence is proof that you're not and you're therefore acting in a racist way. The subjective experience of being able to claim racism is sufficient because it's something that exists inside somebody's own personal experience and personal uh, interpretation of the world. It is unfalsifiable, it is unassailable. And then when you add in the moral implication that it is furthering the oppression and preventing liberation to question such a narrative, you literally have a recipe to make it impossible to have civil discourse or to discuss the issues whatsoever. It is, it's a perfect storm for being unable. So this is the last clip for the day. And the question we have to ask is, what other things can we use to resolve this conflict except violence? the there is no like at least with religion they see god as the objective standard so they're still appealing to an objective standard this is literally each person has their own truth which reflects their own so-called lived reality which literally is viewed as a separate reality from everybody else's so there's no shared reality upon which discussion could take place now again i, I hate to just be standing here stating the obvious but if this kind of idea were ever to really gain a foothold. Now, it's obviously present in parts of academia, maybe much of academia, and it has spread into some popular movements, let's say. I don't know how many people think this way, but it, it's not trivial amount, I'll say. If this ever were to reach critical mass, an outlook that claims that it's an impossibility and even undesirable 
to have the kind of back and forth discourse that, well, I don't know, I guess has characterized Western civilization since the platonic dialogues, for heaven's sake. What other way of adjudicating our disputes is there than violence? There, as far as I can tell, there's not one if it reaches critical mass, because the only options when you don't have dialogue are marginalization and violence. You can marginalize that which is small enough to not have a bid on cultural hegemony. You can't marginalize something that becomes big enough, which might only be as few as, depending on the different studies that you look at, anywhere between maybe five to eight or upwards to 15 to 18% of the population. Once you- Okay guys, that's it. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. And uh, send me some clip ideas, send me your voicemails, whatever. Please send me references, not just raw audio. Thank you.